You're listening to TIP. All right. It's with great pleasure that we welcome back one of our most popular guests that we've had on the show, and that's James Rickards. For anybody who doesn't know James Rickards, he's a New York Times bestselling author for multiple books. He's written the book Currency Wars. He's written the book The Death of Money, The New Case for Gold. He has a whole bunch of books out there. In fact, his book Currency Wars, Ray Dalio, the famous billionaire, had personally read this book and distributed this to all of his employees within his company because he felt it was such an influential read. In this episode, Jim will outline why the Fed will raise rates the next 10 quarters like a clockwork, and if and how you can position your portfolio for changes in the interest rate. Finally, we're going to discuss whether or not Ben Bernanke and Jan Yellen might have had good intentions, but have basically put the US in the same situation as Japan. All right, guys, so hold on to your hats, because here we go. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right, so uh, Stig and I are just so excited to have one of our favorite guests here at TIP back on the show, Jim Rickards. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day. This is a late one for all of us. Uh, well, not for Stig. It's it's early morning for Stig, but for Jim and I, it's, <laughs> it's dark outside and uh, we're sitting down to have this conversation. So Jim, thanks for taking time out of your busy day to talk with us. It's great to be with you, Preston and Stig. I'm uh, very happy to be on the show. Thank you. So let's jump right into this, Jim. Let's talk about interest rates in the United States. We recently had a conversation with Raul Powell, who I know you're friends with some of the guys over there at Real Vision. And Raul threw out this amazing narrative to us. Everyone around the world saying, you know, interest rates are going to keep climbing. You had people like Jeff Gunlock saying, what number was he saying, Stig? The three to five percent or something within a year. It was something really, really absurd. And Raul comes on our show and he says, you know what? Everyone's got it all wrong. He said, these rates are going to go lower. And he said this to us about, I don't know, when did we have that conversation? About a month and a half ago. So far, he's been dead on. And I'm curious, and his big narrative was when oil rebounded, it made the inflationary numbers look higher than what they actually were. And it gave the Fed an opportunity to start ratcheting in some interest rates on the federal funds rate. They started bringing that in while they had the opportunity But his opinion was this 35-year downward trend of the 10-year treasury and all the other interest rates that are running off of it is too much of a pressure to deal with, and it's going to continue this downward pressure. I really want to hear your opinion on this, and then do you agree with Raul? Do you agree with the Ray Dalios and all the other people in the world that are saying these rates are going to go up? Where do you stand on all this? Well, it's a great question, Preston. Let's unpack it a little bit because whenever anyone says interest rates, to me, a little bell goes off in my head and I say, well, are we talking about nominal rates or real rates? Because they're two very different things. Real rates are really what drive things like commodity prices and investment, et cetera. But nominal rates are the things that everyone talks about all day. So we're sort of talking about the thing that doesn't matter and missing the thing that does matter. So that's the first problem. Second thing is rates is a little S at the end of it, which is plural. So you got to talk about the short end of the curve and the long end of the curve. And there's a lot of dynamics between them. You know, there are two to 10 year spreads. And of course, they steepen and flatten, meaning the spread between two year notes and five year notes can get smaller. That's a flattener. And they can get larger, which is they call a steepener. 
but it gets more complicated than that, which is you have bull steepeners and bear steepeners and bull flatteners and bear flatteners, depending on what's driving that dynamic in the yield curve in terms of expectations about inflation and all that. So I put that out as an introduction because you talked about Raul's view on assume 10-year treasury notes. It sounds like what he was talking about, but kind of linking that to Fed policy, you segued perfectly into what the Fed did. And to me, those are two different worlds, not unrelated, not unrelated. But so with that as a preface, let's just kind of take that one at a time. First of all, I do know Raul, great guy, very smart guy. Is uh, not surprised you had him on the program because you've got great guests one after the other. I not only agree with him completely, I've been saying this for a while, maybe Raul and I and four or five others are the only ones, but I see uh, 10-year notes going down perhaps below 1% when all is said and done. So, you know, 70, 80 basis points. And if that sounds extreme, I just remind listeners that yield to maturity on JGB benchmark 10-year notes has been negative for a long time. German bunds, which is the euro denominator, but German issued benchmark has been in and out of negative territory. There are intermediate to long-term bond markets all over the world of major economies, I'm not talking about Zimbabwe here, with negative yields. So what's the United States doing up at, you know, tonight as, as we speak, about 2.2%? That's a huge spread. And you talk to bond traders and they go, well, that's all about inflation expectations. If you think, you know, there's going to be more inflation in the U.S., then you want more protection for your money and you want higher yields and all that. I agree with Raul. I don't see the inflation. I've said, and this, this goes all the way back to my first book, Currency Wars, which came out in 2011 on like page three, like but Roman three little I, like in the introduction before you even got to the book, I talked about the unstable equilibrium between inflation and deflation. I used the metaphor of a tug of war. And I say, when you have a tug of war, you've got two pretty evenly matched teams, two teams of really, you know, kind of strong people, typically, if you're talking about the competitive version. And when it starts, not much happens. I mean, you have enormous, enormous force being exerted on the rope in opposite directions. And yet, because the force is offsetting in opposite directions, not much happens. Now, eventually, it's a little action. Then one team wears down the other and one team collapses and they get pulled over the line by the winning team. But that can take a long time. And I saw inflation and deflation in that kind of dynamic. So what are the deflationary forces? Who's on the deflation team? Well, you have demographics, which we I think we're, we're all pretty familiar with at this point. You have debt deleveraging. If I'm over leveraged, uh, what do I do? Well, I sell some assets and take the money and pay off the debt, reduce my balance sheet. Well, when I sell assets, what's happening to the price? Probably going down. Other people are doing the same thing. So what does that mean? Well, it means more deflation because asset prices are going down. The third element is uh, technology. And again, I don't need to belabor it, but you know, when you see uh, you know, smartphones, go from $900 to $200, and some of them they're given away. That tells you something as well. So demographics, debt deleveraging, and technology are all natural deflationary forces. To that, I would add some behavioral, psychological, not just residue, but maybe intergenerational, almost post-traumatic stress syndrome from the financial panic of 2008. You know, when I grew up in the 50s, my grandparents and even my parents, they would recycle newspapers and save tin cans. And it wasn't out of environmental consciousness. I don't think they minded that. It was because you could get money for them. I mean, that's that's how frugal people were. You were not spendthrift because they were still 20 years. I didn't live through the Great Depression, but 20 years after the Great Depression, I lived in a society where people remembered that and, and acted accordingly. It wasn't until really the 60s and 70s when the baby boomers grew up and we just thought we could spend money like there was no tomorrow. But now, 
because of the 2000 dot-com crash, the 2008 financial panic, we have a generation who have been kind of burned. You know, when you see, when you work 35, 40 years and you see half your retirement income go up in smoke, it probably changes how you're going to look at the future and, you know, save more. And we're kind of, in, we're in a liquidity trap. So these are all natural deflationary forces. What are the inflationary forces? Well, in a word, monetary policy, money printing, $4 trillion on the Fed balance sheet. But when you look around the world and you realize that the ECB and the Bank of Japan and the Bank of England and the People's Bank of China, it's not really a much of a hard currency, but put them in the mix. This looks more like $20 trillion of money printing, not to count the $100 trillion of debt that's been piled on top of that. So you have this money printing, you know, leveraging up aspect of it as well. So these are the two teams. And what's been happening really the last seven years is they're, they're fighting each other to a standstill. Inflation has not taken off the way some of the Fed critics expected. We, we don't have hyperinflation. We can't even get to the Fed's inflation target. Forget about hyperinflation. On the other hand, we haven't fallen into a deflationary spiral and inflation is still low. But to me, that's not a balance. That's not an equilibrium at one and a half, two percent. That's the result of two tectonic plates pushing against each other, creating energy and the potential for a major earthquake somewhere down the road. So that's the lay of the land. Now, with that said, there's nothing that's causing the deflationary forces to go away. So every now and then you have these little inflation rallies and some of it's commodity price driven, some of it's, you know, QE1, QE2, QE3. I do think it's interesting. One question I would ask is, why did the Fed start QE2? Well, the answer is QE1 failed. Why did they start QE3? Because QE2 failed. There is no way in 2009, when we were in QE1, that the Fed thought we'd be sitting here in 2017 with, you know, first quarter estimated growth below 1%. There's no way. They wouldn't have gone down this road if they thought this is where we would end up. They were pretty sure we'd, we'd get some self-sustaining trend growth. And of course, growth has not returned to trend. We're, we're in a depression. The way to understand the United States is we are Japan. You know, the people like Bernanke ran around the early 2000s berating Japan, telling them they were idiots because of their monetary policy and what was wrong with them. They had a lost decade. Of course, now we're in the third lost decade with Japan. 20-year depression. Uh, what's wrong with you people? Why can't you get out of it? And yet, Bernanke and now Yellen have made every single mistake the Japanese made. We've basically replicated Japan with you know, below trend growth, occasional technical recessions, occasional dips into deflation, et cetera. So rates have come down, you know, 15, 10, 5, 4, 3, it's like a countdown. No reason they can't go lower. I know so many guys have been carried off feet first on the short trade where they're like, oh, those rates just can't go any lower, you know, short them. And guys in the bond business, 20, 30 years, they can't believe we're talking about low single digits. You know, it's interesting because we were talking with Bill Miller from Lake Mason back in December. And he had told us that he was literally putting shorts on you know, the 10-year bond. And when he was telling us this, we're like, oh, bond yields have to start going up. If Bill Miller's putting shorts on this, it has to be you know, getting ready to sell off. And you know what? It is just, it went up to like 2.6. But ever since that, it has been just getting hammered, going lower and lower. So I'm curious with this question here, Jim, You know, we went how many years? Eight years with a 25 basis interest rate rise from the federal funds rate in eight years, one time. And then in December, and then in February, we had the Fed move two times for 50 basis points. Do you see that trend continuing where they're going to continue to try to ratchet it up 
I can tell you exactly what the Fed's going to do. And you can do this at home. So if listeners want to take notes, it's it's really easy. I don't get yeah, guys- I want to highlight to our audience the last time you came on the show, I want to say it was November and you told us that the Fed is absolutely raising rates in December and you were 100% right. So I want to throw that out to the audience before you you tell us your opinion here. So let's hear it. Well, thank you. But let me just take the story a little bit further. And I'll give you another data point, Preston. The reason I'm doing this is not to pat myself on the back, but basically to validate the model, because it's the model that I think the listeners can take away with and have some value. So you're right. I did say that in December, but beginning in late December. Okay. So they raised rates on December 14th. The whole world knew that. In late December, I said they're going to raise rates in March 2017. And there is a Fed Funds futures contract, and based on the pricing, you can get an implied probability of a rate hike at a series of forward FOMC meetings. And the market was giving it a 28% probability. And I said, I hate to say anything's 100%. That's kind of dumb. So I said, I was giving it 75 in my brain. I was kind of saying 80, but came out with 75% probability in late December. So the market probability stayed at 28, 30% the entire month of January. The entire month of February, I went from 75 to 80 percent in January. So I'm at 80 percent all of January and February. The market's at 28 percent. What happened on the last two trading days of February and the first trading day of March? The market probability went from 30 percent to 90 percent. Boom, just like that. In two days, two or three days, the market goes to 90 percent. Why? So we converged to 90 percent by March 15th. We were all 100 percent, and then the Fed raised rates. So. That whole gap, if you draw two lines on a graph and just go horizontally from the y-axis at 80% and 30%, look at that gap, and then it closes at the end. I mean, that was the money to be made there. Now, here's why. And I'm absolutely not smarter than all the other people who are commenting and all the people on Wall Street. But I like to say, if you have bad models, you'll get bad results. And if you have good models, you'll get good results. So here's the model. First of all, what is the problem the Fed's trying to solve? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. What is their solution? And then what are the exceptions to that so that we can have a complete predictive analytic model? The problem they're trying to solve is the following. We know from a long series of experiences, you know, 30 or more business cycles since the end of World War II, that when the U.S. is in a recession, you have to cut interest rates 3 to 4% to get the U.S. out of a recession. You need three to 400 basis points of cuts to get the U.S. It's like a plane heading for the ground. How do you pull it out of a nosedive and get it back up in the sky? The answer is 300 basis points of cuts. How do you cut interest rates 300 basis points when you're only at 75 basis points? The answer is you can't. And forget about negative rates. The evidence is now pretty good that negative rates do not work. In other words, negative rates are not more of the same. When you go from, let's say, a half of 1%, then you go to a quarter, and then you go to zero, and then you keep going to negative 25, you didn't just ease by another 25 basis points. The evidence from Japan and Europe is that you're through the looking glass and you have very strange effects, really unintended consequences. I'll give you a couple examples. So the conventional theory is, Well, the more I cut interest rates, the more stimulus I get. That's a joke, but that's what they think. But if I go negative, you're absolutely going to go out and spend the money. Because if you don't spend the money, I'm going to take it away. You sit there long enough, you'll have nothing left in your bank account. Because I'm going to take, with these negative interest rates, I'm going to take it away. So people will run out and spend. And the other thing is that, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, from the lending point of view, they'll borrow money, you know, because the bank pays you to be a borrower. But here's what happens in the real world. This is the difference between academics and human beings. When people see negative interest rates, people have goals in mind. They have lifetime goals, right? They want a kid's education, parents' health care, their own health care, retirement. If you start taking their money away with negative rates, guess what they do? They save more. They're like, hey, I got to put my kids through college. You're taking my money away. I better save more. And then what kind of signal is the central bank sending with negative interest rates? They're sending a deflationary signal. So people go, well, if, you're, if you think it's going to be deflation, I'm not going to spend money. I'll wait till the price comes down. So you're trying to encourage lending and spending, and what you get is more savings and no spending, deferred spending. You get the exact opposite of what you want. So again, another uh, egghead experiment gone awry, but the point being, so negative rates don't work. So zero bound really is zero. It really is a boundary. And you know, Bernanke has said this in his recent writings, and, and I think he's, he's right about that. So back to the problem, how do you cut interest rates 300 basis points when you're at 75? Well, the answer is you can't. So you have to raise them to 300 basis points. So the problem the Fed is trying to solve is how do they get rates to three and a quarter percent before the next recession? Now, I'm not saying the Fed sees a recession, and that's easy because the Fed never sees a recession. In 102 years, the Fed has never seen a recession, never forecast a recession, but they know their economic history. We are 
eight years into an expansion. This ex- it, it feels punk. I mean, the growth is anemic, but you know, labor force participation is low, productivity is dropping. There are a lot of bad things going on. But in fact, we are in the eighth year, actually coming up on soon be entering the ninth year of an expansion, which began in June 2009. Which is the second longest in history, which I think Correct. people and, don't realize is this thing's been running longer than almost any other business cycle we've ever seen. Right. By the way, you have a hard time convincing most Americans that we're not still in a recession. Depressions are different than recessions. You know, the technical definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of declining GDP with rising unemployment, a couple other bells and whistles, little subjective factors, but that's basically it. So people, when you say depression, they're like, huh, depression sounds worse than a recession. And if recession is two quarters of declining GDP, then a depression must be like 10 quarters of declining GDP because it's got to be worse. But that's not the definition. The definition of a depression, you can have growth in a depression, but it's below trend growth. In other words, if trend is three, three and a half, and you're actually banging out one and a half, two, that gap between, let's say, one and a half and three and a half percent growth, that's depressed growth. It's an output gap. It compounds over time and you never get it back. We are losing trillions of dollars of wealth. We are impoverishing future generations on a relative basis because of our inability to get back to trend growth. So the reason American people feel this and don't listen to the economists and the right is because we're in a depression. So leaving that aside, the Fed at least understands the business cycle and the fact that the next recession, you know, they say they don't die of old age, but they do die. And we're getting close to the next one. So they're in a desperate race to get rates up to three and a half percent before the next recession hits so they can cut them to get out of the recession. The question is, can you raise rates enough to cure the next recession without causing the recession you're preparing to cure? That's the dilemma. That's the finesse. My answer is no, they're not going to be able to do it, but they think they can. Why are they in this box? Well, because Bernanke should have raised rates in 2010, 2011, in the early stages of the expansion, when the economy would have been much better able to bear it than it is now. Bernanke skipped a whole cycle. He skipped a whole rate increase cycle to pursue these wacky experiments and you know QE and zero interest rate policy and all that. I spoke to Bernanke about this, and he used the word experiment. He said this was an experiment. He you know, Bernanke made his academic reputation by studying the Great Depression, you know, in the wake of Friedman and Anna Schwartz and some others. But he, he was a great scholar of the Great Depression, and he got his chance to kind of try out his theories. But what he told me was, he said, 30 years from now, some new Ben Bernanke, some young scholar will look back and tell us if we did a good job or not. We actually don't know right now. See, the, the Great Depression was, was really too technical recessions, 29 to 33, and then 1937, 38. But from 33 to 37, we had an expansion, but the whole thing was a depression because we never got out of it. You know, the stock market recovered the 1929 high in 1954. It was a long time to get back to even. But Bernanke's mantra was doing something is better than doing nothing. I completely disagree. It's better to do nothing if you don't know what you're doing. And this is really the monetary equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath. You know, doctors say, you know, first rule of being a doctor is first do no harm. Anyway, bottom line is by pursuing QE and zero interest rate policy, Bernanke failed to raise rates during the early stages of a cycle of expansion, which he should have done. If he had, if he had, the economy would have been just fine and we'd be able to cut them today, but he didn't. So Janet Yellen now has to make up for lost time. So that's the mission. But again, And this is what the market completely does not get. 
and the Wall Street economists don't get, nobody gets this, because they see the Fed raising rates. And they've done the correlations and the regressions back to World War II, and they go, huh, every time the Fed raises rates, the economy is getting stronger. So if the Fed's raising rates, the economy must be getting stronger, so bid up stock prices, et cetera. But that's like saying umbrellas cause rain. Words, they've got the causality backwards. The Fed never leads the economy, ever. The Fed follows the economy. So a normal business cycle looks like this. So you get a little expansion going, and unemployment starts to go down, and industrial capacity utilization starts to go up, and inflation starts to go up, and the Fed's watching, 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 and then it keeps going. They go, oh, it's getting a little hot. We better raise rates, and they raise rates. But, of course, they started too late. The expansion keeps going. Inflation keeps going up. Unemployment keeps going down. Then the economy starts to cool down. Unemployment goes up, and then prices go down, and capacity utilization drops, and we get into a recession. Like, huh, we better cut. You know, and then they cut and cut and cut and cut, and then you hit the bottom, and then you come out of it again. So think of that as like a nice, pretty sine wave, right? That's a business expansion, business contraction over and over, 30 or so times since the end of World War II, with the Fed always following the economy, never leading the economy. So all the big brands on Wall Street, they've got all this data, and they say, well, every time the Fed raises rates, the economy is getting stronger. That has absolutely been true for like 30 times since the end of World War II. It is not true today. The reason it's not true today is because Bernanke skipped the cycle and they're playing catch up. For the first time since 1937, the Fed is tightening into weakness. That is a key thing to bear in mind. The Fed is tightening into weakness. They are not leading the economy to strength. They are not responding to strength, even though Wall Street thinks they are. And there's a great danger that they're actually going to cause the recession they're preparing to cure, as I mentioned. The Fed will raise rates 25 basis points four times a year from now until the middle of 2019 until they get them to three and a quarter percent. So like clockwork, every March, June, September, December for 2017, 2018 into 2019, look for a Fed rate hike until they get to three and a quarter percent, at which point they'll be able to say, all right, now we're three and a quarter. If we have a recession tomorrow, we can cut them back down to zero again and get out of it. That'll be mission accomplished. Now. This is why I was sitting there in December, like, yep, they're going to raise them in March. And right now, I'll tell your listeners, they're going to raise them in June. There's your Fed response function. There's your baseline scenario. What are the exceptions to a Fed rate hike? And under what conditions will they not raise rates? Because this, everything I just described to you, they've had in mind since March 2015, when Yellen took patients out of the statement. That was the end of forward guidance. And by the way, if you go back to 2015, you know, I said they're not going to raise rates all year. and they weren't going to do the liftoff that people were looking for in March, June, September. And they didn't lift off in September because the Chinese rate exchange devaluation, the stock market fell out of bed August 2015. Finally, they raised them in December 2015. And Wall Street was ready for March. I said, no, in June, no, September, no. It wasn't until December 2016 that they raised them the second time. So obviously, there are conditions under which they don't raise rates, notwithstanding the baseline scenario. So what are those conditions? There are three. Well, four, actually. So if you see job creation below 75,000, that will cause them to pause. By the way, pause is the key word. If you go home through the speeches, you'll see the word pause in Dudley's recent remarks. Pause is the Fed's jargon for we're not going to raise rates. We got the gym scenario, which I took from the Fed as their scenario, or a technical recession. So, you know, we're going to know Friday what the first quarter GDP is. It's pretty close to negative, but... I'm not saying we're in a recession now. We might be. But if you see a recession, they'll pause. See job creation below 75,000, they'll pause. 
By the way, that's a very low bar. You know, if you see a jobs report, see, this is the other thing that confuses Wall Street. You see a jobs report with 100,000 jobs. So Wall Street goes, oh, that report's really weak. The Fed's going to think twice. No, 75,000 is the number. Yellen told us that. It was in one of her speeches. You just have to be a geek like me and, and read all the speeches. So the third factor would be disinflation. So the Fed has this 2% inflation target. They missed it for six years. They're finally getting close to hitting it. By the way, I think the listeners know they use the uh, PCE core deflator year over year. There's PPI and CPI and core, and a bunch of inflation indices, but we know what they use. PCE core deflator year over year. That actually has been getting close to 2%. But if you see it turn around, if you see that gap down to like 1.5, 1.4, 1.3, then they will pause. The last condition for the pause is a disorderly decline in stock markets, more than 5%. If you see a 6, 7, 8% decline, so if the S&P went down 100 points, Fed doesn't care. Dow Jones goes down 1,000 points, Fed doesn't care. But beyond that, if you see the S&P start to go down 150 or the Dow start to go down 1,500 points in a disorderly way, it looks a little scary. It looks like there's no bottom. It looks like if you see that, they'll pause. So the Fed is going to raise like clockwork four times a year for the next two and a half years, unless you see job creation below 75,000, disinflation, a technical recession. If you don't see one of those things, they're going to raise rates. And so right now, I don't see any of them. I mean, they could all happen, but it looks like, you know, growth is going to be positive. Job creation has been decent, you know, over 100,000. Disinflation is probably coming, but not quite here yet. And they'll want to see a couple months in a row. And the stock market's not crashing. So none of the pause conditions are in place. Therefore, they will raise rates. Simple. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. 
Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. Thank you for the explanation, Jim. Really. And by saying that and by predicting that, you're definitely also invited until the next, let's say, next 10 quarters and follow up on that. <laughs> and of course, I'm smiling while I'm saying it, but it is true what Preston said before that you were definitely right in predicting the last hike and your reason was correct. So I'm really curious about what we'll see in the next, if not 10, but the next quarters. I remember that time back in 15 when everybody on Wall Street, everyone's saying the Fed's going to hike, the Fed's going to hike. And here's Jim Rickards on Squawk Box or whatever. Every time you said, they're not going to hike, they're not going to hike, they're not. And, and I mean, you were one of the only people in all of financial news saying they're not going to hike that entire year. And you were dead right. Thank you. And, and the reason I said that, I didn't just pull it out of the air, was because one of the pause conditions was in place. Now, it was deflation. The one that wasn't hitting the note was deflation. Job creation was very strong. We were banging out 200,000 jobs a month. Now, you did have the two episodes, uh, August 2015 and January 2016, when the stock market dynamic took over, which is why they did not raise in March of 2016. It was why they did not raise in September 2015. So those were two specific FOMC meetings when I could say they paused because the stock market was in a disorderly decline. But all the others, I based it on the inflation vector because we did have growth and we did have the job creation. So we were hitting two out of four but we were missing one, which was deflation. Now, today, I don't think we're missing any, which is why my forecast is they're going to raise in June. I think that will change, by the way. I think if you want to go out a little further, they will raise in June based on the fact that none of the four conditions I described are front and center. But by July or August, what I'm looking for is that finesse that I described. How do you tighten when the economy is weak without causing recession? I think they will cause a recession or close to it. Either that or the stock market will fall out of bed because the Trump stimulus is not coming as expected. But either way, I expect that by the summer, we will see two or more of these pause factors emerge. Could be disinflation, a stock market route, could be recessionary growth and disinflation. Maybe job creation will fall off a cliff. Maybe we'll lose jobs. Maybe it'll be four for four, right? So I don't know, but I expect that one or more of the conditions will kick in by July and they will not raise in September, but right now they are on track to raise in June. I'm sure that everyone out there in the audience, they're super curious to hear about how do I play this myself? If I agree with Jim, if I also think that either the Fed will hike or since September they will not hike, how do I make a position in the market to benefit from uh, from petition like that? Well, it's a great question, Stig, and it's really, really difficult. One of the most tried and true investing techniques is, and it really works very well, it's just trend following. You know, just find a trend, ride it, keep in tight stops. You know, the oldest 
saying in investing is let your profits run, cut your losses short. So you get something right, roll with it. And you get something wrong, cut it short, get out, get a good night's sleep, wake up the next day, see how you feel. So that's good trading. And it's often the case that companies that have bad earnings reports that surprise the market, they'll have like three more in a row. So there's good fundamental securities analysis that Benjamin Graham uh, stuff that they teach at Columbia Business School, I guess elsewhere, all good stuff. But here's the problem. We are in a very different environment. And I know that when you say that, you get a lot of skepticism on Wall Street. The guy who says, oh, it's different this time, you know, he's always wrong, turns out to be the same, right? But I'll actually say it is different this time. And, and I just explain one of the reasons, which is the Fed is tightening into weakness for the first time since 1937. So if nothing else, that's different. The deflationary forces, you got to go back to the 1930s. Uh, 1929 to 1933 was the last deflationary episode in U.S. history. So we're, you know, it's not different in the scheme of 300 years, but it is different in the scheme of 75, 80 years. We're, we are experiencing things that are outside the living experience of everybody on Wall Street. Unless you're 95 years old, you don't remember this stuff and you, you never lived through it and you can read about it, but that's about it. So there are a number of things that are different. And one of the things that, one of the reasons hedge funds are closing up shop, good hedge fund managers with good track records are losing money. 2016 was only the third time in the history of the hedge fund industry when they had net outflows. The other two times were 99 and 09 when, you know, one in the wake of LTCM and one in the wake of Lehman Brothers. So that makes sense. But what's up with 2016? Why are people pulling money out of hedge funds? Because the performance stinks. And these are, you know, these are by and large smart seasoned people. The problem is that you can rip apart the balance sheet, read the income statement, read the footnotes, get on the management call, meet with management talk to your peers, go to the Stone Conference, do that all day long. And if Angela Merkel gets out of the wrong side of bed and picks out a fight with the Greek finance minister, you could get hammered for reasons that they never taught you at Columbia Business School. In other words, the point is there are these you know, big, big macro swings and stock trading has become commoditized. Now, like the whole stock market rallies when it's risk on and the whole stock market goes down when it's risk off. So a lot of guys trained in all these fundamental techniques, and I'm not disparaging them. It's hard and it, it's hard to do right and it's good stuff, but you're just getting whipped around by the macro. And that's, I mean, that's what I do. I'm, I'm not a stock picker. You don't want to take stock tips from me. But in terms of the macro analysis, these big picture things, that's kind of what I do. That's one problem. The second problem is because of that and because of this Fed, I mean, go back to everything I said about the Fed, where they want to type. They are not neutral. They don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, what do we do? They want to type. But they have these pause factors. So this means they flip-flop. And we've, we've had eight flip-flops since May 2013. May 2013 was when Bernanke gave the taper talk. He didn't start the taper. He just said, we're thinking about starting the taper. That was enough to cause an emerging markets debt crisis. I mean, it was risk off. All the hot money flowed out of South Africa. The RAND crash you know, left Indonesia, Turkey, Brazil. All came back to the United States. Guys were unwinding the carry trade, paying off the short-term debt, closing out the position. I mean, the whole world came uncomfortably close to a meltdown. Certainly the emerging markets thought it was a meltdown simply because Bernanke just said he might start the taper. And then in September, they thought they would, and they didn't. They put it back till December 13. So that was kind of punting. And we saw it again. And, uh, you know, the whole world was set for liftoff. Remember liftoff? That was going to be in um, September 2015, but they put that back to December. They had to go back to happy talk. You know, I recall the first week of September 2015. So the stock market had crashed 11% from August 10th to August 31st. 
we, we looked like there was no bottom. But the Fed had sort of led us to believe that we were going to lift off in September 2015 with the first 25 basis point rate hike. They didn't do it. They went to happy talk. If you're a fundamental analysis, there are no fundamentals. What we have is a totally manipulated system. This is what happens. Eight years, nine years of manipulation. You paint yourself in the corner and you cannot escape the room. The Fed has no way out, no good way out. All the ways out that I see are pretty disastrous. But if you're a trader and you're like, huh, well, what's, what's the trend? There is no trend. So the answer to make money, try to get a couple things right based along the lines I'm saying. Like use the Fed model I just described. There's an opportunity right now today to buy the Fed fund futures. You know, if they're at 60% probability and I'm, I'm giving you an 80% probability, you can make some money there. There are, there are ways to make money, but you have to be nimble. You have to be prepared to just wake up and do a 180 and, and just get out of the chase. So what, you know, in terms of the recommendations I have to readers in my newsletter, you know, the newsletter industry is, is interesting. It's, I analogize it to the daily racing form. You know, if you're going to go to the racetrack, you know, we're, we're not wealth managers or or money managers, you know, we do research and we, uh, we put out ideas. So if you're going to the racetrack and you want to bet, a lot of bettors will pick up the daily racing form. And it's, you know, informed opinion by four or five experts. And, you know, I think Seabiscuit's going to win in the fourth race. And they tell you what jockey is up and the track's muddy and, you know, how this horse performed at this distance before. Maybe he's not so good at long distance, but it's a short race and all that stuff. But you got to make the bet. You're the better. You know, that person who wrote that form is not going to make the bet for you. But lately, I've been advising readers to get out. Maybe we make, you know, 30% or 40% on something. I say, look, take your money off the table and just kind of wait for the next idea because you don't want to give it back. And in a world, if you had it right and things were going to stay the same, you'd let that one run. You'd say, well, we're going to make a lot more. But things don't stay the same. We have these Fed flip-flops, these 180s. So my advice would be stay nimble. There are no set it, forget it trades. So I think, it, first of all, I sympathize with active managers. It's a tough environment out there. But my advice is try to get the ideas right. And when you do get them right, be prepared to take some profits and, and go to the sidelines because none of these trends last long because of the Fed flip-flop. All right, guys. Preston, I really hope you have learned as much from Jim as we have. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we continue our conversation. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Be